Hey friends, it's Eric here. Thanks for listening to the Building Us podcast. Hey, I want to invite you to follow me on my new show, Stuff About Money They Didn't Teach You in School, where I take a deeper dive into money and financial topics. You can find it wherever you listen to your podcast, Stuff About Money They Didn't Teach You in School. I hope to see you there. It is essential that every student, faculty, and staff member in our community and their families feel that we are doing the best to help them through this time. Not perfect, absolutely not perfect. We're all human. Even with that well-intentioned approach, we are in a learning process as we go through this. With each component of information, we improve to do that and to provide for the health and safety and welfare of all. And yes, our population reflects our mission in action. That means that we're diverse. Welcome back to the Building Us podcast, a show all about love, money, and relationships. This is Dr. Matt Morris, couples therapist, joined always by my distinguished colleague, Eric Garcia, financial planner extraordinaire. Is that because I'm wearing a suit today? Yeah, not, not everybody can see you, but I can see you, and you were distinguishedly dressed for an online meeting. You look great, man. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, I, we, I, dress, I dress for our distinguished guest. We have a very distinguished guest today. I'm, I'm honored to have my boss on the show today, <laughs> uh, Dr. Stanton McNeely, the president of the University of Holy Cross, is with us today. Uh, welcome, President McNeely. <laughs> thank you, Matt. Uh, I should say thank you, Dr. Morris, but also thank you, Matt and, and Eric, for having me today. It's a pleasure to be with you. And uh Formal titles aside, we can drop that for this conversation. You know, let's just call ourselves by our first names, but it's 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 uh, who we are, um, and I'm glad to be here and and very privileged to be with each of you and and every, all your listeners today. I do appreciate I I do appreciate you saying that we can use first names because I'm starting to feel a little bit um, a little <laughs> bit inferior. You know, the majority of our guests are doctors, and and here I am. You know, like my my letters come after my name. Y'all's comes before, and so thank you for being so gracious, Stanton. <laughs> you got it, Eric. Man, you're you're like a doctor of uh, money wizardry. That's that's your your expertise is very Go valuable further. to so many of us. You Don't call undersell. me the Go <laughs> yeah. Don't undersell. So. Um, yeah, Stan, I, I uh, miss you. I guess we don't see each other that much anymore yeah. these days. We're, we're, uh, I'm personally not on campus very often. It sounds like you're on campus very regularly, but it, it's uh, quieter around UHD these days. Yes, as, as it is for, for many places, colleges, universities, businesses, other organizations, K-12 schools. We, we are working through the dynamics of the pandemic. And, and so that means a reduced occupancy on campus. And, and so that means we, uh, we're continuing some things from a distance modality online, but also have some focused instruction on site as well. And, and so today I'd love to, to hear about all of that in a little bit more detail. I'd love to hear about Holy Cross's experience uh, over the last several months with with COVID and the coronavirus and and our you know how that affected our teaching uh, on campus and and remotely. Um, I'd also love to just hear your thoughts. I know you're a pretty savvy guy. You're um, into trends and technology. You're aware of what's happening in the larger economic, uh, larger economic and educational spaces. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on kind of the future of, of higher education. Yeah, I got a quick that. story about trends in Stanton. Oh boy. So we met. Oh, uh-oh. uh-oh. 
Uh-oh. We met, oh man, it was it was a while ago. We served on the um, Algiers Economic Development Foundation board together. Yes. And I remember that you were a, a, a very early adopter and prolific user of social media very early on. Um, so speaking of trends, like you are, you are the, the trendsetter of trendsetters. Oh, thanks, Eric. Well, you know, it's one of those things that I know Matt has some questions too about technology and education and where we're going with that. Um, you know, with, with the, the mobile technology, um, you know, social media and all of that used properly as with any technology, it's, it's the equivalent of the pamphlet of, of the revolution of the American revolution or, or, um, the, um, the, uh, the television of the 20th century, um, radio and TV. And now in the 21st century, everyone has the ability to receive information in the palm of their hand, um, as much as on a desktop or a tablet or something of that nature. And so getting the word out to them um, is, is so important, whether it's about the, the Algiers, West Bank and New Orleans or about the University of Holy Cross. Um, you know, we're, we're in a competitive space. And so it's important that we be present as much as we possibly can. You uh, are the president of the University of Holy Cross, but you haven't been the president too long. It's, I think right. it's uh, you're a few years into your your tenure at this point. Uh, could you have ever imagined anything like the spring and summer that we've experienced? Well, Matt, uh, I'm one year and two months in. Um, so yep. I came in into office uh, mid-July of 19. Uh, to answer your question, most frankly, I don't think any one of us could. I, I certainly did not. Um, I, I, I am, uh, from, from life and uh, professional experience, uh, a, a bit in the background or someone in the background of, of emergency administration, leadership, and, and, and management and education. And, and my doctorate was on the study of Dr. Norman Francis, um, the president emeritus of Xavier University of Louisiana, and particularly about his leadership from the time of Hurricane Katrina in 2005 to 2009. And mm -hmm. so um, I experienced Hurricane Katrina was the vice president here when it was Our Lady of Holy Cross College. But but obviously, I could not plan for a pandemic um, in this way. Uh, but, you know, that's where I'm grateful to folks like you, um, the faculty and staff and really making us uh, use that that uh, that expertise that we have in our community to do the Katrina pivot. I mean, excuse me, no pun intended, the pandemic pivot, uh, the COVID pivot um, that that we did back in the spring and summer. That's a uh, that's fascinating to think about your, how your training and your 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 doctoral work um, and obviously your interest are really showing up in an important way right now for us as a as a university community. So it, Dan, you mentioned you mentioned you were the vice president during. Uh, yeah, well, one of the vice presidents. I, I, okay. I was vice president for planning and advancement at the time. And because I was a single guy, I was the on-site administrator. Huh. <laughs> um, hmm. I didn't evacuate. Um, and You, uh, that you was, were in the building. Yes, I, I stayed uh, from August 29th to October 18th and actually gave my, uh, during Katrina, um, there was someone in our IT department, she and her mom flooded out in Gentilly. So I gave him my apartment in Terrytown and, uh, and stayed in an old convent room in 2006. And, and so um, that's just what people did, right? I mean, we helped one another. And and, yeah. and 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 so it actually helped my ability to to work with the university because it was very much a, uh, a, a dynamic where we were occupied by first responders helping the city. Yeah. Um, but then also, too, it taught us the ability to um, work in cooperation with the civil officials to bring not only the city back, but also the school back. I mean, in, in a responsible way. Yeah, I do remember the National Guard driving by. Um, and, and just having all the the Humvees parked outside and the National Guard, those kind of their 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 headquarters. Yeah, we we had a uh, 3,500 personnel at the peak of it, 
Um, and when I say October 16th, that was the first day I left campus because every day was 24 seven. Um, the storm itself was the storm. And although we didn't experience the flooding, like on the East Bank, um, we had multiple water events, um, fire alarms throughout the storm because we did, had tornadic activity. Um, and then when the storm eased up, there was there was some lawlessness around us too. And um, and that actually led to working with the fire department in New Orleans and then the other military and, and, um, and civilian units um, from across the country because that provided security for the campus as well as the ability to help. Um, and President Bush visited us on, on September 11th, 2005. It, 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 but in the terms of the experience we're talking in relation to COVID, um, you know, it's something that the radical change of that time, the radical change of 2005 has been a good, uh, even though different, it's been a good lesson of working with the civil officials, um, state and federal officials, as well as other education partners to lead a university through a dynamic change situation. We did not have a fall 2005 semester. Uh, we had to do fin financial management much differently than before Katrina. Same thing here. Um, the ability to pay our faculty and staff, the ability to provide economic support for our students and fundraising and private support, because most of our students are first generation. Most of our students are on financial aid, overwhelmingly, 87%. So their ability to continue their education with us is so important as they've lost jobs, which is what occurred in 2005 as well. They lost jobs at homes during that time. Just thinking about the university's uh, ability to respond to this, to the COVID situation, uh, reminds me of a, a committee I've been on, or I'm not currently on, but I've been on in the past about um, distance education. It was really led by visionaries at the school, including Dr. Tess O'Neill, who had been talking to us more than five years ago as a faculty about uh, being able to provide online education in the event that we needed to respond to a crisis. And in those meetings, the crisis that we were always picturing was a Katrina kind of event, evacuation for, an, for a, you know, a period of time where we're away from the building, probably away from the city and still being able to, uh, being able to teach classes. Never in those meetings were we talking about a global pandemic. Uh, and so um, we, we were prepared in a lot of ways, at least as, as um, you know, I think some of us were, were more accustomed to using technology to teach than others. But in general, we had been talking about this for a number of years. The circumstances were just different. So I, I'd like to turn our attention back to um, just a few months ago, the spring, March yes. 2020. And, and just thinking back to that um, spring semester, I was on campus one day. I was uh, giving a workshop to many of our students. And within, within a few hours, we were getting there, you know, there was rumblings where we were getting messages that we probably wouldn't be returning to campus next, the following week. Yes. And so, um, you know, you as our as our leaders, our top, top administrator, uh, take us back to that time. How are you making decisions about suspending in-person learning and moving to remote learning? And what was all of that like at that point? Well, and there's a, a New Orleans component to this. Um, so during carnival season, um, I've been following, of course, the national and international media, um, also the CDC guidance for higher education, just on my own. Which, um, which was, and carnival season was about a month before mid-March, right? Mid February. That's correct. Yeah. Yes. Um, been following the White House guidance, um, but especially the CDC for higher ed. Um, and Department of Ed, um, was just doing casual, not, not 
it didn't need to be anything more than informational because it was outside of our region, outside of our country for the most part um, during that time. Um, but what happened on Ash Wednesday was um, I got a call from Dr. Ted Remley in our counseling department. And he, he said, Dr. McNeely, I, I need your go ahead to make a change regarding our planned trip to Italy in March. And it was coincidental with a series of things that occurred on that Ash Wednesday. Um, we have a, pre a group of the New Orleans College University presidents who uh, who we have been talking on the regular. Um, actually, in my previous capacity as president of the Louisiana Association of Independent Colleges and Universities, I linked with them often. So I knew them before coming in with um, with UHC in this role. And, and we started active dialogue um, right then. And then the university campus reopened that Monday after Mardi Gras. I called the cabinet meeting at 8 a.m. that morning, and I, and I told the, uh, the vice presidents to uh, prepare, and other departments as well, to prepare for and work with the various areas of the university to prepare for an extended evacuation. Um, and, and, and that was based upon what we were seeing on national data, um, as well as guidance for higher education from the CDC, and cooperation with GOSEP, which is the Governor's Office of Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness. And, and that's where the Katrina experience really kicked in um, because Katrina was an extended evacuation. Moving back and accelerating it forward um, to COVID and the COVID pivot, Matt, the, uh, the, the thing was that um, we were receiving rapid updates just as, as eventually everyone did um, from the mayor's office of Homeland Security um, and their desire to reduce the concentration of people in certain areas. And that was particularly focused on schools, hmm. K-12, K as well as higher education. Um, they, they wanted these campuses not to be super spreader locations. And, hmm. and so we, of course, respected that, wanted to be good community citizens. And yet, at the same time, position, like you said about Dr. O'Neill and what she did with the online R and the BSN, you know, see what we could do differently. And that's where your your experience and other faculty and staff with distance education allowed us to pivot as best as we could. Yeah, it appears that um, lots of schools were having to make this decision pretty quickly and, and uh, pretty abruptly. How do you imagine the decision was for you as a as a president of a leader of a of a higher education, a, a post secondary education institution, than it would have been for uh, if you were if you were a superintendent of a, of New Orleans public schools or a post you know, secondary schools or, or primary schools? I, I think the key is what you mentioned earlier, Matt, and this is what we've seen across at least American higher education, um, is is the ability to, as, as abrupt as it was, to pivot and continue teaching and learning online. Mm -hmm. um, that process is a lot different with, with younger children. Um, especially yeah. in the elementary level, but also in the secondary level, where where technology is more of a supplement to to really what's important for a developing mind in terms of in-person learning. Now, not to say that that college students aren't developing in, in various ways, including for our younger students, um, similar to a high school student. But but in terms of the ability to dilute the in-person instruction and yet keep it going. Um, Higher education had more flexibility in that regard than perhaps K-12 did it right at that moment in March and April. Um, I, I, I've heard from from my colleagues in K-12 education that that in some cases they 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 really where families didn't have the supports, the cultural capital, the the, the um, ability, time and and financially to support working with their children, that really that student was lost. 
um, you know, that child was lost in K-12 once the in-person ended. For higher education, especially with the personal relationships we have between faculty and students at the University of Holy Cross, like you said, combined with the good and excellent preparation beforehand for distance ed, I think that resulted in us. We only lost one student after March 18th. We lost a student on March 23rd. Um, but that was quite remarkable. Now, it was also timing. We were at the midpoint of the semester. If it had been January, I think the answer, the situation may have been different. But, but I think the, the, the individualized intention, close relation between faculty and staff, and the ability of college students to flip to, to distance helped. Can you give us a, a, just a quick perspective on um, UHC size, student number, faculty count? I'm just kind of curious. Certainly. Um, we, we have uh, 100, excuse me, 1,136 students this fall. Um, so 1,150. So we're a small university. Um, and and our, our faculty to, uh, to student ratio is one to 10. I mean, and so, so Matt knows the names of his students, right, Matt? I mean, you know, you know probably a lot about your students, and, and, and that's, that's a, a value add. That's a UHC difference. It is something that, um, uh, to answer your other question, Eric, it, it's, we probably, off the top, I think we have about 200 faculty and staff total. Um, that's inclusive of part-time folks. Um, so, so, you know, that's, that's another aspect of it. But um, uh, when I talk with my fellow presidents, especially during that March and April timeframe, another difference of the COVID pivot um, among institutions of higher education was that the larger universities that had um, more auditorium sized classes and so forth, the switch to distance and remote was much tougher um, for a class of 150 as opposed to a class of 10. Right. Um, and, and, and so that impacted the effectiveness of the remote education, too. Yeah, all, all spring and uh, even over the summer, I, I've been teaching my classes and my classes are typically smaller, 10 or 12 students in there. So I can see all of their faces on my screen and we can still interact and we can uh, email and text between classes and have you know, office hours and that kind of thing. I've also taught a number of workshops over the last several months that have had hundreds of people in there. And that's a totally different teaching experience. It just feels like you're just talking to your computer, talking yeah. to your room. It doesn't feel like you're really talking to, to anybody in particular. And so, uh, yeah, I can imagine that um, our experience of Holy Cross is, is representative of our experience, but not representative of, of some of the larger universities in the region. Yes. And, and, and now, as time has gone on from that, that radical adjustment in, in, in March and April and in preparations for summer and fall, um, I, I've, I've learned, of course, that, and you may have learned this from colleagues as well, Matt, that, that, that you know, other adjustments are being made as best as possible, given the mm -hmm. nature of each university, you know, for better learning circumstances for students, learning outcomes, given the challenges of COVID. Um, but, but, and of course, each university is different. Um, and I know that um, some universities have more in-person instruction right now. Um, than, than others, and and and, um, but it's it's you know well intentioned to to optimize the, the balance of health and safety responsibility with educational responsibility too. Another a third part to that equation, and and feel free to talk about this as much as you'd like. But what's the financial piece? I mean, what yeah. how do you, how do you ba balance the the financial needs of the university, um, the financial needs of your your employees, your faculty and staff? Mm -hmm. Um, with in-person or online learning? How did, you, how, how did yes. finances factor into the decision? 
uh, significantly. So, so before COVID, uh, one of the dynamics, one of the trends in, in higher education that that um, I was very mindful of coming into this role is is what is the 21st century difference of a religiously affiliated small institution of higher education in the United States? How how do we we show that and make that relevant in in our distinct way? given our mission, our purpose, our calling in this day and time. And one of the things that, that um, on the Council of Independent Colleges uh, listserv uh, that I, I saw at that time in March and April is, is how many are going to close? How, how, many, how many are going to close? It, 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 it has been occurring in other parts of the country. Um, that's Me, meaning pre, pre-pandemic, some schools were already struggling. That's correct. Yeah. And, and so to your question about finances, is is we are as many of our students are we are hand to mouth in the sense that we're dependent upon enrollment to continue our operations pay our folks all of those sorts of things well when the pandemic hit um no one knew how their summer enrollment was going to be no one knew how their fall enrollment was going to be um you, you can't take any trends for granted in that situation nothing from prior i mean it's such a radical disruption of, of our lives, of our world, of our finances, knowing the vast majority of our students work, yeah. whether they're 18 or 58, and that provides their means to go to school to at UHC, nothing is a constant. So you have to plan for a totally different set of circumstances, and that means conservative financial planning. Um, it, it, it means to be very responsible with extremely limited resources to continue the mission and the university in, into a longer term. And uh, fortunately, um, the steps that that you were describing with the ability of our faculty and staff to do distance education in a quality way um, were demonstrated and 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 were used in, along with our our fundraising for for private support for our students to continue their education with us. And we saw continuity during the summer. We actually had a, a slight enrollment uptick during the summer, as well as uh, this fall, where we had a slight we had a enrollment uptick of about three and a half percent in headcount. But our bills have gone up. Hmm. Our insurance is up twelve percent. Um, you know, Eric, that, Eric, can't you do something? About that? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, 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 Matt, <laughs> and and Matt and Eric, as you know, uh, the university opened a, a new residence hall in, in twenty eighteen. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, now the COVID circumstance, like you said, Matt, you're not on campus, right? Right. Well, the campus is pretty quiet, even though we have some classes. The COVID circumstance means that building is barely occupied, yet the bills are still due on it. You know, the the, um, the, the dorm, the beautiful dorm, is uh, is barely occupied now. That's right, yeah. and yet the mortgages still due. Right. You know, yeah. um, just like for for a person, you know, they have to. We have to do that financial planning. Um, the bank still needs their mortgage payment, wants their mortgage payment, mm-hmm. um, you know, and and of course all the other costs as well. So so in terms of financial planning for the university, it's to be realistic, but also to leverage our strengths. One of the transformations that that occurred during the the disruption in March and April, as as you know more than anyone, Matt, um, in this conversation, is is the opportunity that came with our counseling and training center. Um, our counseling and training center on campus has been serving mostly the Algiers community, but a lot of folks across New Orleans in person for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, quality uh, professional education for our graduate students in counseling, and at the same time providing a valued community service that's consistent with our mission, our, our religiously uh, founded mission. Well, in, in the normal series of events, 
that that would be okay we're closing the campus let's shut down that but that's not good for the students and that's not good for the community and and because of of the work of our counseling faculty and leadership we've actually increased the difference that that makes yeah. um, by uh, and that has broadened our reach through tele mental health counseling to the entire state of Louisiana to different markets programming as well as providing more education for more graduate students than would otherwise just be served by a physical location. And I view that as an opportunity for continued growth of the counseling programs. And that's going to help us financially too. Doing the right good. thing leads to good outcomes. That's good. We just did a show on that, um, an episode on tele, uh, telemental health. And uh, we spoke with one therapist and her experience and how, how she's thrived through it. So it's good to hear you talk about how not only does that help individuals, but how, how it plays into the university and its mission and, um, and its finances. Yeah. I mean, because I, I really, as much as we talk about finances and enrollment, we're not for profit. We're a 501c3. So I'm not looking at the bottom line. What I'm looking at is these outcomes in terms of revenue and terms of enrollment as indicators of doing the right thing as our mission calls us to do, which then gives us the capacity and resources to continuously improve in the way we do it. In, in thinking that you mentioned the counseling center, so I just have to uh, to mention that I'm, a, I'm I'm very proud of what they've been doing over there. The, the counseling center has been an outpatient counseling uh, resource to the community for for decades, and it's one of the best deals on the on the West Bank. If you need good counseling, you can go there. It was it was for years. It was fifteen dollars a session. Now it's twenty dollars a session. Which is is very affordable for uh, for meeting those mental health needs in that that area, um, and since COVID, um, that reach has even expanded through telemental health. We have clients now from from all over South Louisiana, and so it, it's been really interesting as a faculty member to watch my graduate students go through the the, the learning process of learning to do counseling online. And and Matt, you know, to your point about education and the disruption that occurred and where it was trending before with online and distance education, do you see, if you don't mind if I ask a question, <laughs> uh, do you see as a faculty member in counseling, um, you know, that there's no turning back to pre-March 18th in that way. It's, it's going to take a different shape. Mm -hmm. um, do, do you see a trend developing both on the counselor education side and on the counseling service side that we may see some sort of, to borrow the word, hybrid even when there's a vaccine, even when the physical counseling center is back on campus and open, that we may see a dynamic that's different, but also provides more access to both education and counseling with UHC and a broader reach of the counseling center. Yeah, I, I do see, uh, I do see us in uh, using technology as, as a significant um, adjunct to what we're already doing in person. Uh, so in counseling, just in the counseling space, um, you know, I, I, as a therapist, as a clinician, have been using teletherapy for, for many years. Um, but I've also had a hard time talking some clients into using it for themselves. They thought, ah, you know, I prefer in-person. I think I'd rather have in-person. Since COVID hit, we've had many, many stories of, of, of now, now people use, that being their only source of counseling is telemental health. And in using it, finding that they enjoy it, that it works well for them, that they prefer it, that there's some real benefits to it. And so we're already seeing clients now that we're reopened and seeing people in person, we're already seeing clients saying, now I'll just stick with, I prefer teletherapy now. Thank you. Um, and so I think if you, if you take that picture and apply it to um, 
higher education, uh, I certainly think that there are classes and parts of classes that can be taught more effectively online. Mm -hmm. Um, There are, you know, I was reading an article about um, the thinking about certain classes or elements of the class that are better taught online. So like a recorded lecture or recorded teaching that can be uh, that students can watch over and over again, that students can access when they need it at the times that they need it, rather than having to be in that seat for that lecture. Um, And then other parts of education that are better taught in person, really the mentoring aspects, the um, the apprenticeship aspects, uh, the the connecting with the students and the faculty are better done in, in person. And so for, for universities to think through how can we use our, our dollars efficiently to maximize that aspect that is better done in person and maximize that aspect that's better done online? I think I think that's the the where where things are going. It's thinking about how to use those dollars differently. Yes. And and be very intentional with that. Right. Yeah. And not, yeah. not everybody loves that. And no. so that there, there will be some, um, you know, just as anything changes and anything develops and grows, it's some people are going to feel like it's not for them. Yeah. And I, I would add to, to, to that. Um, I do think that not just in education, I mean, y'all obviously know better than I do, but in business in general, that, that COVID certainly is an inflection point. Like business is not going to be the same moving forward. I think Matt nailed it on the head when he talked about how there's aspects in higher education that are better done digitally, uh, remotely, and aspects that are done better in person. And as he was saying that, I was thinking, well, that's how we do business all the time. There's aspects to business that I have to do digitally and electronically. There's aspects to business that we're face-to-face. And maybe this is just another step in the higher ed process that makes it more real life and less academic, more, more practical and less theoretical. Absolutely. And, and, and the, uh, just as in business, you look for opportunities through that. And, and and one of the things that was planned for us, talking about counseling in particular, is is the faculty approached me back in July when I came in of 19 about an opportunity to put the, the, the option for an online PhD in counseling. Um, and that would broaden us um, in terms of uh, pot- potential students for the program, also build upon our success and, and, and top quality in that program, and also link it to the master's degree and so forth. You put this inflection point in it, it accelerated that. And, and, and we put additional investment, as Matt was saying about intentional with dollars, we put an investment into that to opportunize that. And one of the things that's always been a challenge for, for the University of Holy Cross is the river, right, in getting additional students. Um, the, the Mississippi the, River, the big river that is in the middle of New Orleans. That's right. Yeah. So, so to for, your, for, yeah, for our non-New Orleans people, yeah. <laughs> if you live on the West Bank, the river's no big deal. If you live on the East Bank, the river is like the border. Exactly. Yeah. And, and just like you said, Eric, that business inflection point means that we could use this disruption to make that river a non-factor or at least yeah. a much lesser factor. Yeah, that's good. To gain new markets. Yeah, I started using as a faculty member, I started using Zoom several years ago in that uh, I might be traveling somewhere else in the country or in the world and still wanted to teach a class. I could teach it by Zoom. And then I recognized due to uh, some some work that other faculty members have have been doing uh, at the university in regards to increasing student access to learning. I started thinking about how could I use Zoom to uh, for to to make it easier for students to come to class if they can't physically come to class. So thinking about 
the working parent who's who needs to be at home supervising their kids' homework or feeding them a meal or or whose child is sick or whose car breaks down or like it happens almost every e- evening in the spring, the weather's terrible in New Orleans, we have a huge rainstorm, people can't make it to Algiers. I had been thinking for a long time and using Zoom to increase student access saying, if you can get here, get here. If you can't, click on this link. And so we had, we had, I, we had already been thinking about um, n- not transitioning all the way to remote learning, yeah. but using remote learning for certain circumstances that made it uh, easier for students. And, and that's only going to accelerate exponentially now. Um, and it's good, though, you know, that in, in what you're saying, Matt, that, that you and, and faculty at the university are, are, have been doing that. And because of, of those factors that just on a normal day-to-day basis pre-COVID um, you were experiencing and the students were experiencing, now it provides additional opportunities for, for not only uh, adjusting those circumstances, but also for, for other um, potential populations of students, too. You know, as I'm sitting here listening to y'all go back and forth, and I, I never really put two and two together and thought, Stan is Matt's boss. I never I never really <laughs> thought of it from that perspective. Um, Signs my contract. I, he does. He, signs, he pays <laughs> your bills. That's right. <laughs> um, but as I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here listening to you to, you to speak, and uh, what, what strikes me is how important it is to have leadership that is forward thinking, uh, that is open, that is willing to go outside of the box. And that could be the difference between success and failure. And I'm, I'm, you know, as we talked about some of those other colleges and universities that, that couldn't make it, I wonder what impact different leadership would have had. And this is not, I, I don't know any of those colleges or universities, and this is not an indictment per se, but I wonder how impactful different leadership would have been that is quicker, that is more, that has its pulse. I mean, you're talking about really, really early in the process. You're already following CDC guidelines. You're already, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, you got, you've got your finger on the pulse. So that's, that's this, this to me, this watching this, this is a, this is a story of leadership. Well, I, I appreciate that, Eric. What, one thing in terms of an observation, um, as I'm listening to your comment there, is is it's it's twofold observations actually. Um, one is that in terms of not only the the top down guidance from government officials like the CDC guidance that provides the framework, right? Um, the health and safety and civil requirements. The same thing when we had the, the governor's office of homeland security meetings, the the mayor's office in New Orleans. What what then has to happen? is that you trust your team, you trust the faculty and staff to work within that framework to set up how they can effectively fulfill their roles. Um, what, what I've discovered, at least in my service, um, and this is pre-COVID, but it's related to COVID and the point you made about, about institutions of higher education, whether they're gonna make it, is that if we, higher education, let me back up, is probably the slowest moving sector of organizational behavior and development since the Renaissance. Think about it. Um, you know, we, we, we actually sometimes exist in spite of ourselves, um, but we are also the longest lasting actors. We're, if, yeah. in ter- if you look at it from a business perspective, our companies, if you want to compare us to other entities, um, if you use that term, are the longest standing actors in this space, in, 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 in the community and in, 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 in organizational development. However, we're also the least entrepreneurial on, on, on average. Hmm. But the opportunity of being small, 
of being nimble, of, of not having heavy legacy, although we have a proud tradition and mission, we really have the flexibility some of our other actors don't really have because they have inhibitors to that. And, and so it, it's, it was something that, that we need to look at in terms of strategic entrepreneurship for the University of Holy Cross coming in last July of 19. And COVID, the COVID pivot accelerates that opportunity for strategic entrepreneurship because I don't want the University of Holy Cross to go the way of these other institutions. Hmm. Um, the conventional wisdom is that we're no longer relevant because institutions that were founded by us a century ago for ex historically excluded populations that um, were founded by, in our case, a religious congregation of women are now served by public universities and colleges at lower price points. And, and so our relevance is no longer necessary. I contrast that with everything that Matt was talking about earlier, um, because that's the difference that the University of Holy Cross makes for people. In business terms, that would be a customer perspective, huh, Eric? I mean, you know, you again, go. I don't like to think of us in those terms because we have a broader mission and purpose. Um, our purpose isn't profitability, although I like to break even and, and, and meet our needs. But, but cash is the lifeblood of any business, any organization. That's that's I don't right. care how good your work is, how good your product is. If you don't have cash, if you can't pay the bills, you can't provide your service. That's right. And that's what I look at more than anything else is our cash forecast. Exactly. And, 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 and to see our ability to have the fuel that could fulfill our educational, spiritual, and community-oriented purpose. And, and so I, I like to use our, our smallness, our flexibility, our, our, our competencies of our faculty and staff to be nimble. And that's where our summer and fall COVID plans came into play. Um, you know, on those president's calls that I mentioned earlier, um, you know, the, the plans for the summer and fall varied widely. And the same thing started to happen with the spring. Um, but again, it goes back to that framework and, and, and that um, it really came from the academic side of the house to say at the chair and deans and provost perspective to say this is how we can effectively and responsibly with the guidelines fulfill our educational outcomes to the optimum level of achievement and and um, be, at the same time provide for the safety of our students faculty and staff um, at other institutions um, that was decided by the president um, you know we're going to do this we're going to bring all our people on campus um, some of those institutions have had pretty significant outbreaks um, since day one. Some have been blessed and have not had that. Um, a lot of that is driven, in my opinion and assessment, um, by the need to have residence hall revenue. Um, if you don't have them on campus and you've got 10 residence halls, then guess what? I mean, you really diminish yeah. what is viewed in that way as a financial model. But at the same time, you run a higher risk of infection and consequences of that infection. The commuter school, like props to the commuter school in this in this That's situation. Right. Yeah. Hey, you know, you mentioned just for you mentioned briefly, and I know that it's on your your mind, protecting everyone at the University of Holy Cross, keeping everybody healthy and safe. And I want to bring it down just to a, a little bit more granular level. Something that we've been talking about as counseling faculty is that um, we have at at the University of Holy Cross a number of um, black and brown students, a number of uh, minority students um, we have in the counseling department that I'm familiar with, students that uh, are older or who have older family members or who have family members that were more at risk from COVID infection. Um, we heard lots of stories of people being very, very close to COVID infections themselves or they're in their immediate family. Um, so just thinking about our particular student body, 
all 1,136 of them that we that we value. How, how did protecting uh, they as students and their family um, play into your decision making? In addition, we have staff that need to be protected. Yes. Um, so how did just protecting our our community, did you feel some sense of, of, of shepherding responsibility in that way? Absolutely, Matt, and thank you for that question. Um, it is essential that that every student, faculty, and staff member in our community and their families feel that we are doing the best to help them through this time. Um, not perfect, absolutely not perfect. We're all human. Um, even even with that well-intentioned um, approach. Um, so we are in a learning process as we go through this. You know, with each component of information, we improve um, to do that and to pro provide for the health and safety and welfare of all. You're absolutely correct. With, with the commuter school aspect of it, and yes, our, our population reflects our mission in action. Who, we, who we're having in our family, our students, faculty, and staff reflect our Marionite uh, influence mission and guided mission, that means that we're diverse. And with that carries a, a, a series of, of ripple effects in terms of the health risks. Um, having students come in and out of a campus, interacting with a thousand people, generally speaking, through the course of a week in a normal circumstance, means they go back home to maybe they, they're caring for their grandparents. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe maybe they're 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 caring for young children, um, and and then also those family members may have lost their jobs. One of them, one of the folks in the household, probably lost their jobs during this time, during the stay-at-home order effect, and so forth. And so it's the health component along with the financial component for the family, and so the shepherding uh, component becomes multifaceted, and it's the health um, mitigating the health risks to the student while advancing their education and upward mobility that way, because they're coming to us to help achieve a better position in life, hopefully call to a greater purpose as well, and at the same time protecting their family. Um, and, and that's in financial ways too. Um, that's why, you know, when I talk about the health and safety, it includes financial safety um, for, for our students, um, knowing that, that they or a family member are going through tough times. I just, just consequently, I spoke to a, a graduate, uh, a graduate, um, a May graduate, I spoke to him earlier today, and he had reported that he had gotten his first job post-graduate school. Fantastic. And, uh, was doing great and um, was healthy and happy. And so he was very, very excited. And uh, that is a lot to balance. That's a lot on your your plate, a lot on your mind. They're not only their immediate health and safety, the immediate health and safety of so many people, but also their the opportunity cost of not being at school for people who who a, a, a degree will mean so much for, I mean, that's, that's a lot. Well, and all the while, you know, I, as a faculty member at the university, I, I want to share that that part of that shepherding requires making sure that the shepherding is there for the faculty and staff. Mm -hmm. um, one of the keys during the Katrina experience is, is that we, and, and to Eric's point about cash, right? As a not-for-profit, we need to look ahead and make sure we've got enough cash. We had enough cash in 05 to pay our faculty and staff for two weeks before mm. the financial aid drawdown from, from, from enrollment and emergency provisions. And we can't guarantee that that's going to happen. So I look, I look now optimally 12 months ahead um, in case we have a disruptive event. And, and, and you're, you're going to hear as we enter October 
um, not from the University of Holy Cross, thank God, but 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 from other institutions of higher education about reductions in personnel because they didn't reach their enrollment goals. Um, they don't have enough cash on hand. Um, not to say we're out of the woods. By far, we're not. Um, but part of that shepherding responsibility, I feel, is to do the best to make the most with the resources we have while working to get additional resources and to grow enrollment that provides more resources to help make sure that we have the support for our students and also our faculty and staff to continue with us because the long-term viability university requires that we retain our faculty and staff. But what, I mean, just hearing you say that, like that, uh, amen, by the way. Amen. Yeah. Thanks. You know, so imagine amening it. So you're making my point. And the point that I'm about to make is, man, what confidence that communicates to your staff that says, you know what? We have a leader who's making good decisions financially so that we can continue to get paid. I don't have to worry about tomorrow so I can focus on educating our students. And all around, you get a better, you get a happier employee, you get a better product, you get better students, you get better results, I would imagine. Yes. And, and it does mean some other tough choices. It means that in order to retain people, um, that means that we have to cut some other things. We have to we have to reduce the non-personnel components of things um, so that we can have the opportunity to be stable and grow in the months and year ahead. Um, but that's part of that that financial responsibility aspect. It's, it's for the good of the whole. Um, and it, because we still don't know, as I mentioned about summer and fall, we still don't know what the winter will bring, what what the spring will bring in terms of the virus, and 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 so it or anything else in other inflection points. Like I said, I still have a nearly empty residence hall that I still have to pay bills on. You know, I don't know if insurance is going to go up again. So my cash forecast may may change a lot um, for other things outside of my control. The world is on fire, and we've had more hurricanes hit the U.S in a very long time. So your insurance rates will go up again. You, yeah, you there up. we go. <laughs> there's a, there's a journal that is a uh, popular in our field, the, the Chronicle of higher education. It's a, it's a publication about trends and things that are happening in, in higher ed. And there was a, a an article this summer entitled plexiglass won't save us. And the, it, they were sort of contrasting um, schools and universities that are spending a lot of time and energy trying to figure out how do we do in-person education safely, you know, plexiglass shields and masks and all, all, all of that stuff that's important, versus um, putting more money and development into remote education and figuring out the balance between the remote and, and in-person. And the article really, I think, does a good job of elucidating um, that, that COVID has shot, shown us and Katrina sh, um, also showed us and other hurricanes show us that um, remote education is going to be part of the future of higher education forever. It's, it's, it's a game changer. Absolutely, Matt. Uh, one of the things that uh, one of my mentors, Father Tom Chambers, when, when he was president, uh, when I was a young director, when I had hair, y'all, um, uh, now being a bald guy, um, this was in, in the late 90s, when I was director of admissions here, um, he encouraged me to learn about a Catholic university in um, Florida called, you may have heard of it called St. Leo University. It's in Lakeland, Florida, between, um, between uh, Tampa and Orlando. And, and what it was doing was um, supporting um, growth on its main campus 
at the time, including the addition of residentiality, student life, all those sorts of things, through a financial plan that broadened partnerships with the military. Um, it was the beginning of the foray into distance education. And they went into partnership with the U.S. Army for um, education in um, three forts, one in Virginia, one in Kentucky, and one in Wyoming. And what it provided was a guaranteed revenue model to support and diversify what they were offering on site. And by um, the time Father ret retired in 2003, um, I, I, uh, I was continuing to study that university because by that point, they were going into online. Mm -hmm. um, they were following a model that the only at the time, the only example really state in the state of Louisiana was from Northwestern State University in Natchitoches um, with with online education. Um, but but it's something that that was it, here we are 20 years later. It's insightful that if, if you can take the approach you're mentioning, Matt, you know, that it's not going back. Um, you know, it, it's it's taking a new normal, a next normal, if you will. I'll prefer the term next normal mm -hmm. um, and in terms of opportunities from the inflection point Eric mentioned um, and, and how as an organization we live our mission. We are better and, and, and more strategic in terms of stewardship of our financial resources to maybe broaden our reach, not just for a moment, but for a very long time. And doing doing that well, I was recently reading articles about uh, trends in higher education that the articles were written 10 years ago or 12 years ago, and they were talking about remote education or online education. It was frequently called then um, and and profiling certain institutions or schools that aren't around anymore. And That's so right. figuring out how do we do this next normal, this next iteration of online education in a sustainable way? Well, and and to your point, um, some of the decisions that that I made uh, with respect to the CARES Act funds, um, you may be familiar with. <laughs> uh, the CARES Act is a uh, is 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 in multiple iterations since the outbreak in March. Um, th there are provisions such as uh, for the business community and and including for us the Paycheck Protection Program. You may have heard of the PPP during the spring, uh -huh. um, and and that helped the University of Holy Cross. Um, to, to help pay our faculty and staff. Um, we're a private entity, so we, we were eligible for that. Another aspect of that were funds that um, I'm grateful to our faculty and to our IT team along the, si the lines that you mentioned. There were funds that were more discretionary um, that, of course, had to go into the organizational pur purpose for higher education. And uh, the CARES Act provided those discretionary funds for administrative decision. And we had a plan from IT as well as academics um, to equip classrooms um, over the next few years. That was pre-COVID that that plan existed. And what I've supported with the CARES Act discretionary funds was to make those investments now because of COVID, but it accomplishes exactly what you're saying beyond COVID for that next normal, Matt. So those classrooms are now a pick, a, equipped with distance ed, uh, technology to provide the continuity and expansion of education beyond the, the pandemic. Sounds good. I don't have to bring my own webcam anymore. That's, yeah, that's right, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in, as far as um, the future of higher education, as, as we're kind of winding down the conversation today, um, beyond COVID, uh, this too shall pass, beyond COVID, what other kind of trends in higher education are on your radar, are things that are keeping you keeping you up at night in the best sense of the word, inspiring you, encouraging you, kind of motivating you? What, what's on your horizon with education? Um, basically, three components that are linked. And, and um, one, it goes back to, to my point earlier, um, 
that that higher education is is traditionally a slow moving industry, um, one of the slowest moving ones. Um, we use a term like semester, right? That actually is based upon 1790s United States. Um, it's based upon the farm, so that the children can go work on the family farm during the summer, and 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 they they go um, to class in 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 the fall and the spring. Um, that links to the opportunity as we're in the 21st century to continuous learning, 12 month learning. And we do that at the University of Holy Cross already. I mean, we, we have still the old framework of semesters, but your students, for example, Matt, are year round, mm-hmm. um, fall, spring and summer. They, they, they don't you know, take a break for, for, for four months. <laughs> you're, you're, you're still teaching through that time yeah. and, and, and they're still learning during that time. So I'm glad we're on the lead, leading edge of that trend. Um, also, too, it's it's lifelong learning is is that there's not a stop point in learning and growth and development and upward mobility combined with that is access. And that's where the hows come in, um, the how on campus um, that may be best for some students, as well as the how that technology enables now. Um, and when we have that economy of scale kick in. The financial component through enrollment development, um, all of those sorts of things means that students can see not only the University of Holy Cross, but also institutions of higher education as accessible options for a moment in time, but also as they continue their lifelong learning experience. Yeah, it sounds uh, it sounds exciting. And, and I'm so uh, it, it's great to listen to you just as a faculty member. Um, it, it really is, as Eric was saying earlier, it's inspiring. It's reassuring. It 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 feels like. We have a, a leader in place who um, uh, we're in good shape with you with you in charge, and so um, I, as I imagine, some some non Holy Cross folks will be listening to this uh, to this episode. I, I imagine most of our listeners aren't directly affiliated with Holy Cross, and this certainly isn't um, a commercial for Holy Cross. I, I really was interested in talking to you about. Um, our, the experience during COVID and the future of higher ed, but what would be your message to to people who may be listening um, about the 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 overarching value of of higher ed in in general, but Holy Cross in particular? Well, thank you, and and again, forgive me uh, for to you and 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 Eric as well as to the audience. Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm probably the biggest cheerleader for the University of Holy Cross, so I just default to that. But, as you uh, should be. <laughs> yeah. uh, to, but to your point is is that um, the benefits, the transformations, the good of higher education cannot be understated mm-hmm. or overstated. Excuse me, <laughs> poor choice of words. Cannot be overstated. Um, not just in the ROI values in terms of income for over a lifespan if someone has gone through higher education, um, but really in terms of holistic formation. What, it doesn't have to be a religiously affiliated institution. It doesn't have to be um, a, a, a research university. It doesn't have to be um, even a baccalaureate degree. Higher education, any form for any individual on this planet, really, has tremendous transformative value for the better. People who are more educated usually live healthier lives. Their families are usually healthier. healthier. They, they do, yes, trend to, tend to earn more income. Um, they do tend to have more upward mobility. They are the avenues out of poverty much more than 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 just a secondary education. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, the biggest break in a cycle of poverty is higher education combined with work. Mm-hmm. And, and and so um, when you link that to 
to the opportunities ahead through greater access, lifelong learning, um, continuous year-round higher education experiences for people, uh, young and old alike, um, that that means that as hopefully a civilization, as a society, as a planet, we see better outcomes in multiple ways uh, in terms of everything from, like I said, the health and, and well-being and upper mobility of individual students to societies um, through lower crime to to greater mobility to economic and 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 uh, greater opportunity for all and and then of course you see other benefits in, in environment and beyond you said um talking about education knowledge nelson mandela said education is the most powerful weapon you can use to change the world yes so and, and, and just to um define something that stanton said in case our listener is not aware of the the term roi's return on investment so see education as an investment into yourself that you spend money to get educated and you uh you go out into the workforce and you make more money than you invested uh investment it's it's, it's spending money to make more money so that was um it's good i got it, i you gonna say something, Stan? Before I no, just uh, just um, I appreciate that that uh, that quote from President Mandela. Um, you know that that that's the other transformation, right? It's it's actually the greater transformation because someone who does change the world can reap and sow so many benefits. Absolutely. Yeah. So kind of change changing speed here a little bit. Um, back in the spring, there during the uh, there was a citywide day of donations right here in New Orleans, Giving Tuesday. I think you pledged to ride miles on your bike. Yes. How, how'd that go? <laughs> it, it went great. It went great. And, and and it was a combination of things, right? Um, you mentioned about leadership. One of, one of the things that, uh, that I, I learned from Dr. Francis um, was that it's his, his leadership style included um, being down to earth and, and, and being relational. Um, at the same time, always pointing to the greater good of what Xavier University is and was doing during his presidency. And, and so during a time of extreme stress in our community for our students, faculty and staff, um, but also a time of need for our students. Again, they were losing jobs at the time. They were we were reactivated the student emergency aid fund from Katrina. Um, I could get in this suit. I can get in this coat and tie and do another video message and, and say, help us raise money for our students. But. The opportunity was for a different path on that, and, and it was to get in my biker shorts and helmet and and t-shirt and tennis shoes and get on my my ten-year-old you know roadmaster and say, you know, to our friends and supporters who are experiencing their own time tough times, to to be relational to say, we're all in this together. Let's let's help lift each other up. Let's help our students achieve their dreams. And and so it was a fun way to do it, but also it was a way that said, you know, we're all rolling up our sleeves to make good things happen. Awesome. awesome. There were a lot of people riding their bike during that time. How many, how many uh, miles did you do? Well, officially I did 80 and it was for, uh, over Ooh. a donation of $50. Ooh. But if, if I did it for every dollar, Matt, um, I still be biking right now. Yeah. <laughs> 80, 80 miles. I did that a lot. <laughs> once I did it once. <laughs> and that is a sacrifice. Stan, it's man. It's always great, um, uh, to talk. We were talking before, and before we, we started hitting record how, um, how unfortunately we just don't have these conversations frequent enough, but when we do see each other, it's as if we, we had just had a conversation and it's always a pleasure, man, to have a conversation with you. You're, you're always, I mean, you're, you're just a consummate professional. Uh, you're always edifying. Um, and, and thanks for making, making time to, to be with us. 
um, today. Matt, any any closing thoughts or closing questions before we let Stanton maybe? Uh, this is just an, an inspiring conversation, uh, uh, Dr. McNeely. I really appreciate you being here, and I look forward to seeing you in person again one day. Same here, Matt. Um, Dr. Morris, and, and much respect and thanks to you and all the faculty and staff and the transformations you're doing through this COVID pivot. But I, I do sincerely believe, not only for the University of Holy Cross, but for higher education and our world, we're going to come out of this much stronger. Thank you all. Thank you, Eric. Yeah, I think we all will come out of this much stronger. Get educated, invest in yourself, and in the meantime, you'll be investing in your relationships. Dr. Matt Morris maintains an active private practice for couples and families in the greater New Orleans area. To learn more about his work, visit drmattmorris.com. Eric Garcia can be found online at plan-wisely.com. His branch office is located in New Orleans, Louisiana. The branch phone number is 504-218-5479. Securities offered through Royal Alliance Associates Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through New Century Financial Group, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Insurance services offered through Garcia Financial Group, LLC. Entities listed are not affiliated.